Most rider courses will teach you to use your brakes to scrub off your speed before you enter the corner, then get off the brakes because braking in the corner is something you don't want to do. Well, today on our Adventure Rider Radio's exclusive rider skills program, we're braking in the corner, trail braking. And we aren't talking about going faster, we're talking about riding safer. And after that, if you ride anywhere that cell coverage isn't reliable or maybe it's non-existent and who doesn't, then you're going to be interested in this little device that allows you to send and receive messages and even get rescued should the need arise. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. we got a good one for you. Before we get going, I want to thank some sponsors that helped bring this episode to you today. One is Best Rest. Best Rest makes the number one tire pump in the business for us motorcycles. It's made in the U.S. and has a lifetime warranty. It's also the distributor for Google Tech filters in North America. The website, www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. And Max BMW Motorcycles that's been outfitting adventure riders like you and I since 2002. They've got loads of parts and accessories online ready to ship to your door. They've got an e-rider newsletter that's free to sign up for and highly recommend it. The website, maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Sam Manning. Graham Field. Ted Simon. Austin Vance. Pat Jakes. Herbert Schmantz. Nathan Millwall. Linda Postit. Nick Coates. Simon Payton. Raymond Coates. Sterling Noreen. Grant Johnson. Edgar Peterson. Thank you. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. We're proud to be associated with Green Chili Adventure Gear because they make American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using their strapping system. They've got a load of stuff you've got to see. You want tough stuff? They've got it. www.greenchiliadv.com. That's www.greenchiliadv.com. Rider Skills is an exclusive program we developed here at Adventure Rider Radio designed to give you tools that can improve your riding skills both on and off-road. Now, of course, this segment is not meant to be a substitute for professional training. These are ideas and concepts that should you choose to try, you are doing so at your own risk. I think at this point, most riders have learned the instructions for cornering a motorcycle. They kind of go like this. As you approach the corner, you use the brakes to scrub off enough speed to navigate the corner safely, and then you get off the brakes before you enter the corner. Then you lean, and after passing a delayed and late apex, you accelerate out of the corner. But as with most things motorcycle-related, there's another way. And today, we're talking about another way. It's called trail braking. Now, I think for many riders... Trail braking is always associated with a racetrack and for racers. It allows the racers to enter the corner just a little bit faster. Then for them, it can make the difference of either being in front or behind, which is important. But for the average rider on the street, we don't need to ride the corner fast. We don't need to get ahead. Because unlike the closed racetrack that's designed for high-speed racing, the street has all the hazards of the real world. Traffic, blind corners, obstacles, pedestrians, animals, debris on the road, changing road surface, the list just goes on and on. But for me, trail braking has everything to do with all of those problems I just listed of riding the public roads. For instance, let's say you enter a blind corner that you've ridden before, you know the corner. You can't see around it, 
but you're riding the speed you normally do, and as you near the apex of the corner, you spot an obstacle on the road. Now, according to what you've learned about taking a corner, you're not supposed to brake while you're leaned over. So you stand the bike up and you hit the brakes hard. Now, at least two things are happening there. One, the bike stops turning because you stood it up straight and it's not going to turn. And two, you've upset the suspension by grabbing the front brakes, the front forks have compressed, and the weight has shifted forward. Now the weight is coming off the rear wheel, which, if you're using some rear brake as well, could lead to the rear wheel locking. As you can imagine, this situation is not going to end well, likely. But if you were trail braking, your front suspension would have already been loaded. So the abrupt shift wouldn't have happened. You would have been on the brake already. You could have braked, swerved, and rode on. That's what we're going to look at right now. Clinton Smout heads up Smart Adventures in Ontario, Canada. He's been teaching motorcycle riding for over 25 years. He's a certified BMW off-road instructor, and he also teaches uh, snowmobiling and ATVing. First thing I wanted to ask you about was most people probably see you as a as a dirt instructor, but you've got a street background. Yes, absolutely. What's the street background? I taught at a big program in Toronto, Humber College, for 23 years. And that was novice rider training, but we developed pro rider courses where people would bring their own motorcycle and we would do more advanced skills, including cornering. And then I also taught at this racetrack and it was predominantly cruiser riders would bring their own bike, some of them embarrassingly in a trailer. And then we would ride on the racetrack and do slow speed control, braking, and cornering exercises. And then when the gentleman that owned that business called Fast, Michel Mercier, when he was really hard up for an instructor for his other sport riding school, then he would call me and I would go and help him teach, which was really fun. What What's the thing that you mentioned about um, you, were, you were trying to, te- or were you teaching instructors? Was that what it was? Or testers? Yeah. Well, in Ontario, in the early 90s, they started developing the graduated licensing system. Prior to 1993, you would just get your motorcycle test in a parking lot. That was your full M license for Ontario, which I think is class five or six for you. Uh, I can't can't remember. Right. So the graduated system, they hired consultants to come up with a test, an on-road riding test. And then they hired a number of us to be demonstration rider slash consultants where the people that drew up the test weren't necessarily motorcyclists, but they knew the psychology behind testing people. And then we would ride around with a van following us with four would-be licensed testers in it. So they were training for four days. And we would have a radio in our ear And they would give us verbal instructions. So they would say, Jim, at the next set of lights, turn left. Turn left at the next set of lights. And we would have to do the proper procedures for the approach to a turn. So look at your mirror. Put your turn signal on. Look over your blind spot on the left shoulder. Have the appropriate tire track. Show a brake light. Stop 
the proper distance behind the vehicle in front of you if it's a red light, blah, blah, blah. And they're marking, there's probably 40 elements, 40 things that they would look for in a left-hand turn. Anything you did wrong or the applicant in a test did wrong, you're marked. So we would have to perform errors on purpose that the people who were learning how to administer the test could see and then mark it clearly in the right spot on the test sheet. And out of this four-day event, most of it was training. And then at the very end, um, they would take turns with the radio. And if they didn't do a good job, they wouldn't become signing authorities for motorcycle licenses. Well, I guess they want certain mistakes, don't they? They, they want you to do this mistake at this turn sort of thing and Absolutely. see if everybody catches it. Well, we would just we would make up their, our own and for you know particular right turn what I would do is jump up on the curb and cut the corner and jump off the curb. And that would just flip them out. <laughs> I did it for comic relief. I never did that stuff during an actual test run, but in all the practices, I would do goofy stuff like that because it's pretty dry stuff. Or they would say, Clinton, somewhere up ahead where you deem it safe, pull over and perform a roadside stop as if something was wrong with your motorcycle. So I would go in at about 40 kilometers an hour and just light up the back brake and slide the bike into the curb so it ended up perpendicular to the curb oh, and obviously that's a markable error but it was really fun right <laughs> well, well what do you know about i mean with all this this especially the track uh, instructions that you've done yeah. what do you know about trail braking can you can you just maybe give an overview of what trail braking yeah. is as a new rider, if you took any kind of rider training, you probably heard the instructor say, going into a corner, you should not have your brakes on, folks. Right, right. So that's the, just to be clear here. So we, and we've done it on this show, too. We've talked about different things in corner. We did a cording episode, as a matter of fact, um, some oh, some years back. But um, it was scrub off the speed before you enter the corner. That's always the thought exactly. process. Then just towards the apex or the middle of the curve, from the appropriate side, left tire track or right tire track, you look. So you look through the exit of the curve. That's the best way to help turn with your eyes. Then push on the handlebar in the direction you want to go. So if you're turning right, you put pressure on the right grip and then roll on the throttle past the apex. Trail braking is more in tune with racing on a paved track that's been swept. There's no salt, dust, or sand on it. And it's a way to get through a corner faster because if you can leave your brakes on a little bit on the approach, you can go in hotter at a faster speed. Then as, and we're talking front brake, as you are about to lean it in with that push that we discussed, having your front brake on scrubs off speed so you can take that apex or that tight part of the corner at a similar speed to what you did before. It's just your approach in, the distance from the entrance to the apex, you get there faster. And then you trail brake. I always told people, and I still do it, one finger on the front brake so you don't grab it 
inadvertently in a panic because that just will, the front end will wash out, skid out, and you'll low side. So if you go in with one finger on the brake, go through your apex, then get off the brake as you would before, and then you can roll on the throttle. And where uh, some people may use it in a street application on pavement, um, there's some weird roads where there's a secondary highway, maybe 50 miles an hour, 80 kilometers an hour. And then there's a, a, a paved road that just 90 degree turns off of this fairly high speed road. If you slow right down to five or 10 kilometers an hour to take that 90 degree turn, there's people behind you doing on 90 or 100 kilometers an hour. You could appreciate this isn't a smart move. So if you start your turn from a higher speed with trail braking, it's a much safer exit off the highway because you can take the corner faster. Mm. But there is the risk there, in particular with that one. If it, if there's gravel for the um, the yes. shoulder, that's the spot where people cut the corner and blow the gravel up onto the road, and that absolutely that could be a problem. Yeah. Definitely. Okay, let's go, let's go back to the, the the trail braking. So basically, what trail yep. braking is, the way I understand it, is that you're you're braking into the corner, um, into the apex, whereas before we we're scrubbing off the speed before we entered the corner. That's the main difference. So you're actually you're moving into your angle. You're angling your bike. You're leaning into the corner with your exactly. brakes on and your suspension compressed. Absolutely. And the biggest thing I think that's important, even if you're not going to road race or you don't think you would use trails braking in your normal street riding on pavement. I would bet that nobody listening to this discussion would be able to say, I've never gone into a corner too fast. We've all had our heart go up into our throat and heard screaming in our helmets. When we realize, oh my God, this is way tighter than I thought it was. And you're going too fast. Now, sometimes a nervous novice will look at the ditch when turning right, they'll look straight, lock up the brakes and go right off the road. In a turn situation, if you get on the brakes aggressively, it stands the motorcycle up and a motorcycle will not turn a corner unless it's leaned over. So it's very important to know how to trail brake because there will be that instance, maybe it's this spring where you go in too hot and you realize, you know what, I got to slow down a little bit. I want to scrub a little speed. I'm going to ride one finger on the front brake to decelerate before the apex. And then as I start my turn in, I've accomplished some deceleration that I didn't have without braking. And now I can make that corner. So um, this is where also where you need to fully understand counter steering because you mentioned about that where, where a novice will go into a corner and they'll panic and they'll get the brakes on. Also counter steering because if you don't really understand the mechanics of what you're doing and counter steering is you know, really basic for, for motorcyclists. If you don't understand the, the mechanics of it in a panic situation, you may find yourself trying to turn around the corner, which is obviously going to do completely the opposite. Absolutely. And where it's um, really evident is at a novice rider training school, a lot of the people have ridden for years. They've just never gotten a license. And then the dumb instructor tries to impress them with a $5 word, gyroscopic steering, which they couldn't even spell, but 
they want to sound important. And what we've learned is that the more you talk, the less people will learn. Get them on the bike. So what we would simply say is we want you just to lean on the right handlebar to get your motorcycle to go right. So push right to go right. And don't worry about it. All of you have ridden bicycles before. Many of you rode your own bike to the course. So you already know how to turn a motorcycle with push steering. We're just asking you to do it precisely within these pylon boundaries. So you're going to control how far that motorcycle leans to create the turn desired. But it used to drive me nuts as a boss to hear people go on and on and on. They would actually say this. Now, it looks like the wheel is going to the left because you've pushed on the right bar. But don't worry about that. And most people looking at that and saying, this guy's on crack. The wheel's going left. How is it going to go right? Yeah. Yeah, I know. So, and, and, it, and it can get very, very confusing as a beginner to try and figure yes. all this out. Absolutely. Well, so for trail braking, so we're going into the corner, we're loading up the brakes. And there's a couple of things here that, that we're accomplishing from this, with this, from what I gather, is that one is obviously we're scrubbing off our speed. The other one is we're controlling our suspension and our braking as we're dragging those brakes well into the corner. In other words, the suspension is already compressed, loaded up in particular. You're saying it's mainly front brake. That's usually yes. how they teach it. Absolutely. Why does that give us better control? Well, if you decelerate by any means, chopping the throttle, putting the front brake on, or the rear brake is less pronounced, but there's front suspension dive. Even on a BMW with telelever front end, there's less dive, but there's still a pronounced forward movement of weight transfer. This puts a lot more weight on the small contact patch of the front tire, and that's where we want good traction for turning, especially leaned over. Now, the, the contrast would be some people get a little scared and they pull their clutch in on a corner. And the, there's the opposite effect. Now the suspension elongates or stands up. You've got less weight on the front wheel, consequently far less traction. And if you lean a motorcycle over, there's other physics that's happening that will slide the front wheel out if you challenge traction too much. So that's why on the racetrack, we would always say, don't touch your rear brake, front brake only on the approach to a corner. And then once people got it dialed in, we actually had lines, the cornering lines marked off in chalk. And once they had it figured out, a little bit more advanced technique we would do on the racetrack is front brake trail braking. And that way they could keep a little more speed going into towards the apex and then roll on the throttle to get out. And not rear brake. No, no, not on the racetrack. Yeah. So, okay, so here's my question. Now, I know this already, um, that they don't use it on the racetrack. And, but the racetrack is special because the track is clear, it's dust-free, all of that stuff. There's no sand on the racetrack, etc. On the street, it's something completely different. And there could be sand, leaves, gravel, whatever the case is. And you're not going to know, likely, going around the corner. So this is why we're talking about, um, you were mentioning that you have to be very careful here with with loading up the front brake because you have these these hazards on the road. So why not 
why not load up the front brake as you're going in and transfer it more to the rear brake as you're into the corner? Because you've loaded up your suspension. I know it will rebound some, but you'll still get yes. that drag and you won't have the um, the chance of having a, a surface change and the surface condition for the tire to lose traction and low side. Yeah, the problem with it's it's easier to slide out and lose traction with rear brake because any kind of deceleration, even putting the rear brake, the front suspension compresses. That lightens and elongates the rear suspension. So now there's less weight on the rear tire, which will cause it to be the one that is very sensitive to losing traction, especially once we start leaning in a little towards the apex. A leaned over motorcycle is very susceptible to sliding out if the rear brake is put on just a little too hard. So it's easier to control a front brake with your finger than it is a rear brake with your toe. There's more sensitivity and feel with front brake from my experience. Okay, so so this is this is a, a way to go through a corner faster. I mean, that's not something yes. that we necessarily want to do. But you did mention that you know we've all experienced that thing where you enter the corner and you are going too fast. So is this a, a recovery uh, thing that, that uh, as well? Absolutely. Because like, I mean, otherwise, if it's just going through through a corner faster, I mean, we don't really have a use for it necessarily. No, um, another reason why rear brake isn't used on the racetracks predominantly is you're going in so hot. If I can stay off my brakes longer than you are, I'm going to be faster getting to that corner than you are. Sure. Then it's can I lean it over at that speed and get through the corner? Okay, so how about us on the road? Us people who are riding adventure bikes or street bikes, yeah. how does it help us on the road then? On the road, what trail braking will do is, is that instance when we've realized, holy crap, we're going too fast. For this particular corner maybe it's an unfamiliar area or it's a decreasing radius curve and you're turning to the right and you realize wow at the speed i'm going i don't know if i can make it around that corner and there's traffic coming towards you we don't want to go wide to the left that's oncoming traffic so we've got to get it through that corner i would get on my front brake with one finger and have that sensitive pull where I'm just putting a little bit of brake on to scrub some speed. I can't hammer it like I possibly could get away with when I'm approaching a stop sign straight up and down, because then you'll get really good braking force from the front. Leaned over in a corner, we, we must be sensitive to the fact that it'll lock up, slide out very easily. Uh, adventure bikes, have the added issue of a lot of us are running less than perfect street tires. We're doing a 90-10 if it's like a stock tire, or if we're planning on doing some real adventure riding, then you have to go through cities eventually. There's going to be pavement. Even in Africa, there's places we went had lots of, of questionable pavement, but some of it really good. And we were on 50-50 adventure tires almost a knobby so um, imagine a knobby is the five fingertips of your hand that's all that's on the ground on the pavement when you're cornering so you have to be very careful 
with more aggressive tires because they'll slip out faster than a street tire will. Now, this method of trail braking, you have to be very, very delicate uh, applying the brakes to compress the suspension as you're going around the corner and then also delicate releasing the brakes. Absolutely. Um, An abrupt unloading of the suspension could cause traction loss. So if you want to try it, I think it's best to go out in a big parking lot. Just take a gentle corner with one finger slightly compressing the front brake. Um, What we used to tell people at the racetrack is you're moving your bike, you're just pushing it in neutral, the engine's off. The amount of front brake you would put on for trail braking is you could still move the front tire. You can still push your motorcycle around. That's how little front brake we're putting on. And that's why I was an advocate of one finger, because you're telling your brain and your muscles, you don't need to grab this thing. Where a lot of people use front brake with four fingers and with a good hydraulic system, you don't need the power of your whole hand. And adventure bikes, we're always advocating, we're in rough terrain. So hang on to your grip with the two fingers furthest away from your thumb. The other two fingers are adjusting your levers using on the clutch or brake. Yeah, I was going to say about the uh, the two fingers. Uh, unless you're riding an older KLR, the, it seemed to me that there was <laughs> there was never quite enough brake there, no matter how hard you right. pulled. <laughs> yeah, some of my old old bikes are drum brake, front brake. Yeah, and you you've got to use if you're riding it really hot. I've never had them on a racetrack, but mid race the brakes would fade. And you had to put two hands on the brake. <laughs> Luckily for us nowadays, I mean, that's, that's you know, something that isn't heard of really. I thought, are oh. there any bikes that you know of now made uh, that people say the brakes are not adequate? No, no not that, um, especially, you know, maybe little dirt bikes. There's some older technology entry level Enduros, 250s, 200s. It's got the same technology that it had in the late 70s early 80s and they haven't really upgraded it Mm. so maybe those are marginal but man the stopping power uh i just rode we just got delivery of our new gs's for the school and took them out and it's like just look at the brake and it was incredible braking power and then i bought i was telling you i bought this 1999 r1100 gs And I took it out for a little spin. There's a bit of snow on the roads, but a bit of gravel showing through. And I'm thinking, wow, the brakes are horrible on this. I have to rebuild them. And then I realized that's just the technology of 20 years ago. It's it's improved amazingly. And you're not going to do anything with those. That's that's you're going to have to ride accordingly. Yes, exactly. Adjust what you're doing. So with trail braking, then, just to, to wrap this up, then, yeah. the, the, what we would use it for is if we're going into any corner and being able to at least have a chance of recovering, scrubbing off speed at the last minute, the reason for it is our suspension is already compressed because if we got mid-corner, if we scrubbed off our speed before we entered the corner and then we're into the corner and we find there's an obstacle, whatever it is, where we're going too fast, we would have to get on the brakes and to get on them at that point, you're going to have that instant compression of the suspension. And that's where you talked about anything you do like that is going to destabilize the bike. Yeah. I think we want to avoid any abrupt movements on a motorcycle when we're leaved, leaned over. Braking, chopping the throttle, 
gear shifting up or down, especially down, because the lower speed gear will lock up that rear tire. It's just like jamming the rear brake on. It's going to slide out. Even momentarily. I mean, sometimes it's, it's difficult to discern that you've you've done it. I mean, I know that you'll see traction control flicker. On, um, I have seen it flicker before where I'm thinking, I didn't feel anything. Yes. Yeah, electronics is amazing. Or a lot of modern bikes will come with a slipper clutch, especially more sport bikes. And that way it, it won't allow that back wheel to lock up with an abrupt downshift. Mm. So that's what we're trying to avoid. We're trying to avoid upsetting the suspension, upsetting the, the bike into the corner. So basically, we're, we're, um, we're going in, we're braking a little bit later. We're, we're doing a, a very uh, careful application of the brakes to on the front brake to compress that suspension, the front suspension, um, loading up the weight in the front, being very careful, obviously, and aware of the fact that we're increasing the load and the dependency of the front tire the traction, like you said, that five fingers, and then being very easy, letting it off and letting it uncompress as we accelerate out of the corner. We were talking about practicing this and the fact that uh, what I was saying is it comes down to a lot to feel, isn't it? This is something that you can explain the technique, but now you have to go out and try it and you have to develop a feel for it. Absolutely. Um, To the point where when I have big, thick winter gloves on, I don't have that same sensitivity as my summer riding gloves. Mm -hmm. So having the feel is really important and that only comes from practice and it's going to change when you change motorcycles the suspension the brakes everything is different Uh, a great place to learn it if there is a track day nearby or a track school Uh, the one in ontario is called fast and you use their you know r6 full leathers awry helmets and there's great tutelage on how to take a corner how to downshift and brake without chopping the front brake on and off those kind of skill sets are then transferred not to road race on the street but just to take a corner smoother and if you do get in that situation where your speed's too high some track experience will really help you with trail braking Yeah, that makes perfect sense because um, entering the corner, like you said, when you, you enter a corner and you find that you you went in too fast and then to get on the brakes, everything just upsets at that point. You've got your front end suspension compressing, you're lightening up your rear tire now, everything changes, the, the whole dynamics of your corner. Absolutely. I think Europeans are largely better riders than North Americans because their roads are far more twisty and challenging and in many places more congested. Um, I have cousins that when they came to Canada to visit, I had a spare bike and we went out riding. I could not believe how aggressive my cousin was in corners. And I said, do you road race? He no, never been on a track. It's just he was very comfortable at speed throwing a bike over into apexes far more than I was. And now I'm too old, I don't do it. And it was just the roads. When I visited him, it was very similar where the, there's just very, very twisty roads in his part of England. Beautiful riding. So it's a matter of you're being comfortable with your experience. And that's where a lot of people crash, especially dumb males, because we try to keep up with each other. Where women have more sense. Go, I'm not going to chase her or him. I'm going to end up at the coffee shop five minutes later, but at least I'll end up 
So if someone's on a different bike, maybe they've got a lot of track days, don't try chasing them through corners. If you don't know how, you may not make it. Well, Clinton, uh, that's great stuff. Thank you very much. Oh, my pleasure, Jim, as always. Always great to have Clinton on. That was Clinton Smout from Smart Adventures in Ontario, Canada. They do snowmobile, ATV, and mostly motorcycle training at their facility there. You can find out more at their website, www.smartadventures.ca. And of course, that link will be in our show notes. Now we're going to take a two-minute break to thank some sponsors that helped bring this episode to you, but stay with us because we're going to be right back and we're going to be talking about a little device that can maybe get you a message back home saying, I'm late, hold off dinner, and it could also save your life. Stay with us. How does this sound? California Lost Coast Dual Sport Motorcycle Tour. Yeah, I'm in. Well, that's just one of the tours that Carrie Doherty is running at Motobird Adventures. Motobird Adventures is motorcycle tours for women by a woman. Motobird has a full lineup of adventures from dual sport to pavement only trips. These trips are designed for women, but that doesn't mean a guy can't go. If you're a guy, um, you can sign up with a friend, girlfriend, wife. Uh, You could even take your daughter on what could be a bonding trip of a lifetime. And that could really be something. And Carrie has lots of experience. She runs the tours. She's done all kinds of uh, trips on her own, including long distance trips. Drop by the website and see what everybody's talking about. It's motobirdadventures.com. And and be sure anytime you, you call or email or you're talking to Carrie, make sure you tell her that you heard her here on Adventure Rider Radio. Again, The website is motobirdadventures.com. You know, arguably the most important connection between you and your motorcycle are your handlebars and your foot pegs. Yet the foot pegs are often ignored or even worse, sometimes replaced with substandard ones. Because there's more to a a foot peg, an aftermarket foot peg, than just a wider platform. It, It not only needs to be built tough, I mean really tough, because the last thing you want is a peg to fail on you. But they need to be designed in certain ways to allow your foot to pivot properly, to catch a gear and brake lever, to allow them to fold up properly when they bump up against something. All things that are are found on quality foot pegs. The pegs I use and abuse a lot are IMS products. IMS has been making hard parts for motorcycles since 1976, and they've now got a complete line of pegs for adventure motorcycles. Um, drop by their website, look at what they've got for you, www.imsproducts.com. And anytime you're talking with them, uh, emailing, phone, whatever, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Again, www.imsproducts.com. You know, this is an incredible sport that we have, motorcycling. It takes us almost anywhere we want to go. We explore cities, towns, highways, and and my favorite is the back roads and trails of wherever we are. And we travel long haul, we travel short haul. We tend to sort of ride off the grid a lot of times, so to speak, um, out of cell connection range, away from emergency services, off the beaten path. And that's all well and good. But with it, 
comes a risk. Now, there's devices nowadays that use satellites in space to relay messages from our remote locations back to our family and friends. The same devices also act as a sort of a 911 beacon or an SOS emergency beacon where when you set it off, you send a message to emergency services saying, I'm in dire need of help. And the market for these units continues to evolve. Uh, there's a relatively new edition out now called Spot X by Global Star. The Spot X is a, it's a handheld device. It's self-contained, meaning that it has a, a keyboard on it, a built-in battery, an antenna, basically everything you need to allow someone to track you, to send check-ins, to initiate an SOS request, and even send messages to email addresses or text messages to cell phones. It's really incredible. And one of the things that I really like about it is that when you buy this unit and activate it, you actually get a phone number for the unit. So when somebody messages you, it's like messaging another phone. You don't have to respond to a message that they send you. It's not confusing that way. I got a chance to try out the new Spot X for myself, and I found it really adds a, a margin of safety. Kind of like insurance, only better because you've got communication. But I want to talk about it, but to get the full scoop, we decided to go right to the top and got this guy. Hello, my name is Jim Mandela. I'm the Vice President and General, General Manager of Global Star Canada, and I live in Toronto. Jim, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks. Glad to be here. It's been a while since we talked. I think the last time we talked, uh, matter of fact, I know the last time we talked, we talked about the Spot Gen 3. Now your latest product is the Spot X, which I, I do want to talk to you about. But first of all, can you just fill us in? What is Global Star and what is the Spot program? Okay, sure. Will do. I guess about 10 years ago, um, our company, Global Star, which is one of the uh, largest manufacturers of satellite equipment in the world, um, started to get into the personal satellite messenger category. And as you just mentioned, um, the last time we spoke, we were launching something called the Spot Gen 3. Over the last 10 years, we've been manufacturing personal satellite messengers specifically for the outdoor adventurer. Now, you guys have done through this system over 5,000 rescues worldwide, of which uh, to over 2,400, almost 2,500 have been in the U.S., 1,500 in Canada, covering six continents, 89 different countries. That's yes. a lot of rescues. It's a lot of rescues, and we have a lot of subscribers over the last decade, over all the units that we have. We're getting close to 400,000 users all around the world. Some of our most avid users are right here in Canada, and we're very proud of the amount of um, saves that our company's been able to uh, help initiate and uh, keep our subscribers safe. Um, close to 2,000 in Canada now, and uh, that's all across our different verticals, and our motorsports users users are among our highest users and some of the users that require some of the most uh, uh, interesting saves across the country. That's that's an interesting stat I didn't know about. So it's, I'm curious about this sort of thing, you know, when it comes to rescues. So all, all these rescues, what would have happened to these people without this sort of system? And and is it the type of thing that are, are we sort of in, in enabling ourselves to do more things because we have this this modern equipment that we can, you know, that we can call for help? Well, actually, I think a part of it is there's always going to be those people who are out there getting into situations that uh, are going to require um, some search and rescue. What Global Star and Spot products are really designed to do is eliminate the search portion of the search and rescue. So we really want 
um, our users to get out there, enjoy the great outdoors, enjoy those areas of our great country that are not covered by cell coverage, but still have the security blanket of having a spot device on them that can ensure they can always get in touch with family, friends, and more importantly, into the SOS. And because the devices are GPS enabled, um, our search and rescuers are able to easily find um, all our subscribers anywhere, not only in Canada. I think probably most people who are listening to this understand how how a spot system works or how these satellite communicators work. Basically, and I'll, and I'll just run through it quickly, basically you've got the, the communicator with you. It transmits a signal up to the satellite, which transmits it back down to Earth to some sort of land-based connection. And that's how you, you get attention in a place that you would otherwise not get cell service. And I think it, probably to clear something up here for, I, I think some people who aren't into this technology, they don't quite understand that the cell service is terrestrial compared to a satellite service. That, that's a, a really good point. So Global Star has a network of 24 satellites that are covering the Earth at all times. You will be completely covered 24 hours a day. The cell system is sort of something that really stays um, more in an urban environment and along some of the, the major highways. But as soon as you get off the beaten path, even by a kilometer or two, your cell coverage drops. So what we're providing is the security blanket with our spot messenger so that if you're outside of that cell coverage or sometimes in reduced cell coverage, you will always be able to make um, uh, a message get through the network and you'll be able to communicate with family and friends. And most importantly, if you ever get into a situation where you need help, you can push that SOS button. Now, I think what um, a lot of listeners may not realize is or, or understand or have had experience with, and I hope they wouldn't have, uh, is what happens when you do need a rescue. So uh, I just want to sort of run through a scenario here. If somebody sets off the SOS button, which is the the 911 button you're basically looking for outside where well, you are, you're looking for outside help, outside rescue, what happens yeah. after that? So it's actually a, a very simple process, and it actually is something that we've been working on for over 10 years, and that's why we have so many of these rescues that end up being so successful. Once you push the SOS button on any of the spot devices, your signal goes up to our satellites, again, down to the ground station, and then that signal gets automatically put to a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week service at a company called Geos. Now, Geos then begins the save process for you. What they'll do is they'll find your profile in the system from the the ID of the device that they see on the network, and then they see where you are on the map. And what helps the, the process happen really expeditiously and, and properly is that when they see where you are, they will find the closest emergency services to wherever your GPS location is. So, for example, you're in northern British Columbia and you're having an issue. They will find whoever the closest person is that they could find help. Now, that doesn't always necessarily mean it's going to be an emergency services. We've actually helped people get out of areas by co by contacting local private companies with helicopters to ask them to go and actually find um, some of our, uh, our clients out in, in some unbelievably remote areas. So the service works because it's very interactive. The benefit of that is um, you'll always pretty much be guaranteed that someone will be on their way to help you when you push that SOS button. Now, as soon as you said private helicopters, instantly I'm thinking money here. Who who pays for this? Well, the great thing is, um, as part of the package, when you sign up as a spot user, there's an insurance component. When you sign the insurance component, which is a very small fee, it's only I think fifteen dollars annually. Um, those cover those uh, those rescues are covered. So there's no additional cost to you on top of your annual regular spot service. 
Okay, that is really important because mm-hmm. I've had a number of people tell me they just simply missed that. They thought it was just an extra thing and they just didn't bother with it. But that's really important. In particular, I, I know that I think for most of, uh, like for Canada and the U.S., I think you're pretty much covered for rescues sure. as far as from government. You know, if, the, if search and rescue has to come and get you or if uh, the Coast Guard or something like that, the police have to come out, you're not going to get a bill. But if you go and hire a private helicopter, it would. And that's where that that plan comes in. Is there any, any sort of the extra costs, I guess? Yeah, so it's a it's a very it's a very nominal cost, and we suggest that everybody take the uh, the additional insurance so that no matter where you are worldwide, uh, you get into a situation where you need rescue. The last thing you want to be worrying about is pushing that button because or not pushing that button because you think there's going to be an added cost. So it's mm-hmm. a really cost effective way to ensure your safety. What happens if you're in another country? Let's say you're let's say you're somewhere in South America. You're you're on a motorcycle trip, and you have a problem. You press nine one one. Who comes then? Well, it's the exact same procedure. So what they'll do is um, this company, Geos, has a list of basically all the emergency services locations virtually around the world. They've really done an amazing job building this database. And we've had plenty of Canadian customers. We've had plenty of Canadian uh, companies give spot devices to their workers when they go down there, and they've initiated SOSs. They'll just simply call the local governments. They'll call the local police. They'll call the local emergency services, and they will do whatever they need to do to ensure that our customers um, get the service that they require. Let's talk about the Spot X. This is something that's um, quite a bit different than, than the other systems. The, the Gen 3 did have on it, which, which I really liked. I'm a big fan of the Gen 3 still. It had a system where you got a response from the satellite where previous versions didn't, at least mm-hmm. the original version, which is the one I had when, when it first came out. It didn't get any response from the satellite. So you didn't really mm-hmm. know if you actually got your signal to the satellite. Gen 3 did. It came back and it said, yes, um, you got to the satellite, which was great. Spot X goes another step further. It sure does. I think about 10 years ago when we started this, um, our systems were a lot simpler. It was a one-way message. And really, you never knew that that message was going to get to the satellites or if emergency help was going to happen. Now, almost exclusively, it did happen. But sometimes, if it took a long time, it really created some anxiety for some of our users. So we were getting constant feedback. We'd love to have something that was a two-way, something that would send a message and receive a message. And uh, we just uh, released Spot X, and it has really been accepted um, in the market really well. And our users love it. There's that feedback. You can send a message. For example, if you're sending an emergency message, it would send it to the emergency center and they would actually send a message back to you. Explain to me what the situation is. Are you okay? Really get that interactive feedback, making our customers really feel comfortable no matter where they are in the world. So this interactive feedback, it's the most important thing I believe we've done with our spot product since we started. So this is a this is a physical device with a physical keyboard on it. it it's a Correct. standalone system. Correct. So the, the device actually looks a little bit like a BlackBerry. The keyboard's actually quite similar. You can actually type freeform messages. There are a bunch of preloaded messages into the device that are easily sent through the device. And um It really is a very simple and effective way to communicate when you're outside of cell phone coverage. And what we're finding is the users that are are, are now are brand new users. Um, They loved our Spot Gen 3 because of its reliability and its ease of use. And they're finding that this is just one step on uh, above with regards to usage, ease of use, and really 
uh, starting to really love the fact that when they send messages, a family member or a friend can actually message them back. They can have that interactive uh, feeling. They can really feel like they're staying connected when they're outside of cell phone coverage. So the one thing that I, that I was really impressed with with this system is that it actually gives the device a telephone number. And that makes a difference when you go to respond. It does. So the very nature of the device is someone could just simply send you a message at any time. They could respond to your messages. It really acts in a lot of ways like a cell phone. Now, the actual functionality of the device is slightly different than something would happen on a cell phone network, which when you're texting, it's basically instantaneous. Well, our devices, you know, it's going up into space, has to come back down, process through our network. So it's slightly slower. But really, um, you're talking minutes to get messages back and forth. And when you're in an area where you have no coverage, you're alone, you need help, you want to communicate, it really is, um, I think, the most amazing two-way communication system on the market right now. Now, um, we've tried this a lot, and um, it still has the, the same as the Gen 3. It's got the, uh, the tracking on it, so you can set the tracking on, you can be tracked as you go along, and you can send messages. I, I sort of see the message thing as almost like a, a secondary thing. Would that, would that be fair to say? Because you've still got your SOS, you've still got your tracking on there. You're exactly right. I really believe that, you know, most people are going to use this device. If you're someone who's going out into um, an area where, you know, there's no cell phone coverage. You're generally trying to get away from all the communication. You want to have the backup. You want to have something there and available for you so that in case something happens, you can communicate. People love doing the tracking so that when they get back, they can follow the route that they've been or they share their tracking live to family and friends and someone back home can actually see, you know, actually where they're going as they're tracking. Those are the two, you know, I would say most used features. And then the actual messaging I think the messaging is a really what I consider a really nice to have. Um, make sure that you're staying connected. Make sure that someone knows where you are. But I don't think it's used in the same way, you know, traditional messaging and text messaging is used. It's really used as that backup communication. Do you think uh, or do you consider it sort of a, a, a type of get out of jail free devices? Is, is it the type of thing that you can actually count on 100 percent? Well, you can definitely count on it 100%, um, well, as close as you possibly can. Um, basically, what we're finding is um, a lot of uh, our marketing um, comes back and says that these devices are being bought by loved ones to give to their spouse. So what they're saying is, yeah, you can go out and you can do your long ride. Um, you could do your long snowmobile ride. You can get out into the adventure. You can go do your hunting, your fishing, your kayaking. And I won't have to worry about you. But I, I, want, I want to be able to know that you're okay. Please take this spot device. Send me an okay check-in message. Send me a quick text message maybe once or twice. And if anything really is bad that needs to be happened, I feel comfortable that I can get a hold of you. Now, it's not so that they're going to communicate all the time. It really is uh, allowing people to do more, get out, do more in areas that they probably wouldn't feel comfortable unless they had a device like this spot. Yeah, and well, we found the tracking is quite handy because it allows me to go by myself. And then Elizabeth, my wife, feels better <laughs> because she, if she decides that she just wants to check, she can look at it and see exactly where I am, which is, is very handy. You know, that's the feedback we get is that uh, people love just having the, the comfort and peace of mind and knowing where their loved one is, not that they're following up on, up on them. They just want to make sure that they're OK. And this is why, um, you know, Spot is used in so many different uh, markets. Um, one of our biggest uh, verticals is, is slowly growing into is the small uh, the small plane, the pilot market. 
and uh, the pilot doesn't have a lot of options in communication when they're in air. Sometimes they'll be flying for two and three hours um, unless they wanted to get a satellite phone. And even, even that, it's not really recommended um, when they're in flight. What they'll do is they'll put their spot device in tracking mode, simply put it on the dash of their plane. They'll use it to open and close their their, their flight plans. And it just gives uh, friends and families and coworkers that peace of mind that you know when they've got there, when they've got to the destination, um, uh, they know they've arrived. So again, what we're really selling is peace of mind. We're selling safety. We're selling um, you know people being able to get out and do things that you know maybe they wouldn't have felt all that comfortable without doing doing without a spot device. Okay, and but with this device, you do need a clear view of the sky. You do need a clear view of the sky. Actually, with with most of our products, any satellite product, to be honest with you, even you know, for example, GPS in your car. When you go into an underground, that GPS signal gets blocked off. Your XM radio system gets blocked off. Satellite inherently needs a clear view of the sky. Um, our products are no different. You get better performance when you are, have a, a better view of the sky. That's for sure. So if you're if you're in a deep canyon, I guess what I'm getting to here is you're in a deep canyon. You're not going to be able to get into a spot that you have a very narrow sliver of the sky. And this has been our experience and expect mm-hmm. that you're going to get full communications out of there. I, I sort of think that like what we've ran into is that we've got um, we've got check ins and we've got tracking, but not always the, the messaging or if it is, it's, we get delayed messaging. So I think. <laughs> One of the things with a new product in a new category, for example, and SpotX is really starting a newish category, there is a bit of a time that it takes to actually learn how to use the device properly. So to send the send messages, people are very familiar with typing messages and just holding the device and, and letting the message go out. Now, our satellites are traveling over at a high speed, and there's always another satellite coming overhead. If a satellite is blocked out, for example, and the next satellite hasn't arrived yet and people put the device away or put the device down, then they might not receive that message. So there's a little bit of learning to do. We're doing, we're trying to do a better job on our websites to try to inform customers after they've sent messages to try to keep that device sort of pointed upwards for an extended period of time to make sure that incoming message gets in. So there is a little bit of a learning curve, but once you learn how to use it, once you learn, um, you know, the best uh, method to use it, we're finding that customers are, are, are a lot more satisfied. You mentioned the, the GPS. I know the GPS is, um, they, can have all, they can have a number of satellites, uh, 12, 15 satellites that they receive signals from. With mm-hmm. the spot, is it, just a, is it communicating with one or does it communicate with a network? Well, it's communicating with a network of satellites and on top of that with our own satellites. Those also do um, some positioning as well. So there's backup and redundancy uh, about that. So um, that's generally why the tracking for the most part is the, is the definitely the most reliable portion of the messaging from the device. You'll see if you put that in two and a half minute tracking, leave it on your dash or put it on, on your motorcycle, for example, in an open space. The tracking is very reliable. You'll get that two and a half minute track. One of the things that I, th- I guess concerned me with the old system was, and mm-hmm. I think it concerned a lot of people, is that if you pressed, say I came ac- across an emergency and I yeah. pressed the 911 button for them, I instantly have my family worried that it's me. Mm-hmm. And with the, with the Spot X, I can get the message out right away. Hey, this isn't me. This is what I'm dealing with. That's a great point. So in the original spot devices, when you buy the device, you're able to set up an account online. In that account online, you put your primary and your secondary contacts in case of emergency. So when the call is initiated, 
um, Geos actually starts calling your family and friends, whoever that primary and, and secondary uh, account holder is, and says, you know, is Jim in trouble? Would you believe that if you push the SOS in this circumstance, he'd actually be in trouble? Have you heard from him? They start like sort of a triangle of communication so that they can kind of verify what's going on. Now, that would upset your wife if you got a call um, that you would push the SOS button. Oh, I yeah. told to get it. Of course, with Spot X, you will actually be direct communicating with our geo center. So you could actually say, no, I'm not an injury. I've come across a serious accident and you obviously have the GPS location. I recommend that you send help to this location. They'll communicate back and forth to you and that and they won't call those primary and secondary uh, people on on your setup page. Now, this being a new device, things will mm-hmm. change as we go forward. I know you had a software update, which brought out some great things. One of them was, I think, a, an audible alert when you get a message. I love it. I think you changed some of the ways that you answer a message, which which were great improvements. Where do we go from here? What's coming up next? So there are a bunch more improvements. We are really working hard to make the experience better. Um uh, our head office is now in in Louisiana, and I was just down last week meeting with some of the software engineers, some of the actual hardware engineers, and they're tirelessly trying to make the device better, improving the keypad, improving the navigational directional buttons, and improving the user interface, always trying to do things that will help someone use the device a little bit more simply, have a better experience. So there's more software updates coming on top of that. We're going to be doing some improvements to the device. Um, we're talking about adding Bluetooth so you could actually maybe sync that device with a, with um, with your cell phone so that you could actually do some more messaging from your cell phone and transfer them over to the device. Anything that we can do to make the experience and the usage of sending messages through our spot network and ultimately giving you some peace of mind and, and adding that SOS component is really ultimately what we're trying to do. Yeah, the, the one thing I, I really do like is that it's a um, complete device. You hold it in your hand, it's got the keyboard on it. I think that's really important because I have, I've been through emergency situations where you have to deal with the stress of, of dealing with what it is you, is what's going on for you. And then the trying to connect different devices together, it just gets more pro- problematic. I understand it as an option, but I love the fact that keyboard is on the device. The, the improvements I would like to see, and I'm sure you've heard them all, is, is mm-hmm. one, that the keyboard itself, rounded keys, like a little bit of rounded key, like the BlackBerry style. We all know what the BlackBerry was like. It was the ultimate keyboard. That's coming. That's coming. Is that's it, coming. I, that's we're, great. We're, doing, we're going to be doing a running change on that shortly, and you're going to see a huge improvement. The feedback we're getting is that the new keyboard is amazing. Oh, the great. directional keypad at the top, uh, which um, some people like, some people didn't, is a lot more pronounced, allowing you to navigate a lot better. So, yeah, we're hearing the feedback back exactly like you're giving and and we're going to be doing those uh, hopefully in the next few weeks here. Wow, that's great because that's that's two of the things. And the other one was, I was going to say, a larger font. Be able to enlarge a font for those of us who are maybe getting a little bit older and need reading glasses. In particular, if you're in a situation because if you can't see the screen, of course, that doesn't help. No, you're absolutely right. And that's definitely one of the things that we're working on to improve. And um Look for that as an improvement in uh, in one of the next com- upcoming releases. We're going to work hard to get all those improvements in the device uh, as quickly as possible. And just to recap, one of the things people had always said is, why do you need a keyboard? And, and one of the reasons why we always say is 
if you have multiple devices, you have to think about multiple charging of devices. You have to think about multiple syncing of devices. With a standalone device like the Spot X, it lasts for a really long time. You don't have to really worry about the batteries. And if anything really bad happens and you have that device, you can send a message and you can get help. You don't have to worry about where your other devices are. It is ready to go and it's reliable and it really performs well. Mm, yeah, I think that's really important because uh, the last time I had a, a chance to use a device, it was a, an in-reach device and, and it had to be paired with the phone. Well, the, the phone had a problem for some reason and it wasn't my device. It was the person that I was helping and I had to pair my phone to it to try and get it to work. And the whole thing, that whole pairing thing and everything just became stressful in that situation. Whereas right. otherwise, if it was just on the device, you just get on it any type of way. So please, Jim, don't lose the keyboard. Love the keyboard. No, I, I'm with you on that. I'm one of the biggest proponents of having the keyboard. Here's the other example. Let's say, for example, uh, you have a family member that wants to go out into somewhere and use the device. And you say, here, just take my spot device. You can go out there, out there and use it as is. On the back office, what you can do is uh, log in, change some of the uh, people that they're going to contact, all those basic things. But the device is able to use exactly how it is. And, for example, if that person might get incapacitated, they may get injured and they can't use it. If the device is there, someone else can just grab it. As long as it's on, it's relatively self-explanatory. They can go ahead and initiate a save. It's really easy. So you're, you're putting multiple layers of safety in a device, and you don't really have to have it paired to another device for it to work, which is a, which is a huge factor. I agree. Well, Jim, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk to me about this, and uh, I look forward to seeing what you're bringing out next as far as a, an upgrade for the model. Thanks very much. It was great to talk to you. That was Jim Mandela, Vice President of Global Star Canada. Uh, the unit we've been talking about is called Spot X, and they just came out with another software update right after we did this interview um, at least that's when I got it. This one's changed a lot in the message, message system, and I really like it. The messages are now in a format like a regular messenger system, and uh, you, re you respond to it differently, and it's just far more intuitive. I mentioned at the start about uh, you getting a phone number assigned to the unit. When you activate the unit, it gets uh, assigned a telephone number. This is really big for me. Um, this makes messaging so much easier than the in-reach system that we tried before, meaning that anyone that gets a message from you can just write down your, your telephone number and message you from another device. They can't phone you. It's not a phone. but And they can also hand that message that phone number to somebody else and have them message you, whereas the in-reach system forces you to respond from the message that you get from the unit. And if the person on the other end is not familiar with the system, we found it gets quite confusing. So I think that's a, a really important thing. I think this system has so much potential. In any case, whatever system you choose, I highly recommend some sort of satellite communicator. It doesn't take much to put you out of commission on the motorcycle if you really think about it. We've even heard about um, people who have fallen off the motorcycle, gone down, have been trapped under the bike. So it's a piece of emergency equipment that I think is well worth having. I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com. Also, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear at greenchiliadv.com. 
Hey, you do us a great favor. If anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime you see them anywhere, you mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. up another episode of adventure rider radio and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it special thanks to our producer elizabeth martin and of course to you the listener thank you very much if you like what we're doing here we would love to have your support the show is built on a model of advertising and listener support we count on the listener support drop by our website and click on the support button www.adventureriderradio.com If you have any ideas for a show, you've got topics or comments, drop by our website. You can comment right on the website in the show notes and there's a lot of things in the show notes from each episode we do. And as well, you can contact us through all the social media channels as well. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. My name's Jim Martin. See you next week. Adventure Rider Radio, and this is Nick Sanders from Wales and Great Britain, and it's a pleasure talking to you all.